Hello, everybody. Today, we are going to talk about something uh, everyone likes to talk about these days, um, de-dollarization, uh, where it is happening with uh, great speed and where it isn't. I'm Meera Chandan, co-head of the FX strategy team uh, here at JP Morgan, and I'm joined by two other JP Morgan analysts, uh, Natasha Kaneva, who's head of uh, commodities research, uh, and Saad Siddiqui, head of local markets um, strategy. So to set the stage, um, I can start with some context. Um, now, if you take a look at broad dollar usage measures, uh, and you put together a composite of, uh, of such measures, and the Fed does something like this, uh, you know, you take into account things like um, transaction volumes, debt issuance, cross-border claims, uh, shared and FX reserves, of course. Uh, what you find is that dollar usage has indeed fallen in the last five years or so. Um, but that crucially, that that share of the dollar um, is still well within its longer term range. Uh, so to give you an example, um, currently we're estimating that dollar usage, uh, the, the, the US dollar share in overall currency usage is around 66%. Uh, that's in the context of a 65 to 70% range in the last decade and a half. So sure, towards the lower end of the range, but this is not at least based on composite measures um, outside of its um, outside of its um, regular range. Now, importantly, um, you know this is still puts the dollar as a dominant uh, currency of usage with the largest share. The next largest is the euro at twenty four percent, followed by uh, yen and sterling at about seven or eight percent, and finally uh, the renminbi at at around three percent. So um, I guess the question is, you know, where is uh, where is this uh, de-dollarization theme coming from? And and really, you have to look, you know, to to get a better sense of that, you do have to look under the hood. Um, and what you find is that there is some bifurcation uh, within the usage uh, when you look under that hood. Uh, the first thing I'll say is if you look at the transactional measures, uh, the dollar dominance actually still remains top of class. Uh, you take a look at FX volumes, for example, the dollar share is still uh, you know, close to record highs. It's, it, it was one leg of 88% of FX uh, volumes that traded in currency markets. Um, you look at uh, things like trade invoicing, um, you know, global shares of the dollar and euro have held relatively steady uh, in the last couple of decades at about 40 to 50 percent. Uh, Cross-border uh, liabilities is actually a pretty important measure for the dollar um, usage because, you know, when you do get that liquidity or volatility shock, um, that's essentially what determines what the demand um, for that currency is going to be during um, during any kind of um, uh, deleveraging event. And it's important to know that the cross-border liabilities, uh, you know, dollar um, has been roughly stable at just under 50% uh, of nominal volumes and overall currency debt issuance, uh, you know, foreign currency debt issuance in the dollar is relatively high and stable as well. Now, you that doesn't mean you're not seeing uh, you know, that's the transactional side of things. Obviously, that's very much in contrast, contrast to what's going on in the dollar in the US share uh, when you look at its share in global exports or global output. Uh, but, uh, you know, what you do tend to see is that the part where the de-dollarization is coming through, at least from a top-down perspective, you tend to see a lot of that come through in central bank FX reserves. Um, and I think, you know, this is where if you take a look at, um, you know, go back in time and adjust for valuations, uh, what we're finding is that the dollar share is now down to a record low in FX reserves. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's around 58%. That's still the largest of any other currency, uh, but certainly it is um, it is at a record low. And, you know, that share is even lower once you start accounting for 
goal because uh, the one thing that we have seen is that a lot of EM central banks are starting to accumulate uh, gold uh, versus fiat currencies as well. So, uh, you know, that basically sets uh, the bifurcated landscape as far as dollar usage is concerned. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I wanted to get on this podcast the perspective of, uh, of uh, analysts who tend to look at it through the lens of their markets uh, and the richer data sets that they might have. So let's start with commodities, uh, since we're talking about transactional dominance. Uh, Natasha, you've argued uh, that de-dollarization trend in commodities is becoming uh, too large to ignore uh, you know, why Why is that? And is this is this trend more pronounced in some commodities versus uh, others? Uh, yes, Mira, thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is the conclusion we have been reaching. And so this trend definitely is not new. It started in 2014 when Russia annexed uh, Crimea, but it's now it's visible. Then in 2022, the trend has accelerated. So overall, the, the immediate and the most visible catalyst of the Ukraine war was Russia's rerouting of its energy exports, yes, away from Europe towards the east and the south, Europe pivoted west. Um, so it does appear that Russia is pursuing a three-pronged strategy. So number one, it's looking to build new trade routes that do not pass through uh, waters that are currently controlled by the west. Number two, it's trying to de-dollarize its energy exports. Uh, and number three, it's also trying to open new markets uh, to diversify away from China. Um, so clearly, you know, as Russia is carving new trade routes, increasingly it's focused east, looking to expand its oil exporting ports in the far in the far east and open this, you know, the main Vladivostok Chennai maritime corridor that would connect with India. But the second step is to create a new trade route, a trade route southward. It's the so-called international north-south transport corridor. Uh, via the Caspian Sea to pass through Azerbaijan, uh, Iran, and then and then to India. So there are two uh, main implications of this uh, geopolitical shift in terms of the new customers that China that sorry that Russia is finding. So number one is it's a structural shift in the global energy markets. So it's different regions of the world are now paying wildly different prices for their main energy sources. Yes, so. We know and everybody has been reading about that in the news is that the Ural's crude prices uh, has significantly diverged from the Brent price, indicating this um, a significant economic advantage of the new buyers of Russian crude compared to those buying uh, at the global prices. So the prices are not transparent. So when you look at Bloomberg, that does not mean exactly that, uh, you know, that's for the Ural's price is uh, trading. But uh, our understanding is that it is sold at a discount to publish dollar Brent price. So the second development is that, crucially, all those Russian products exported eastward and southward, southward will either be sold in the local currencies of the buyers or potentially in the currencies of the countries that Russia perceives as friendly. So again, as I mentioned previously, the trend is not new. It started in 2014 uh, when Russia was feeling the pressure from sanctions uh, because of the annexation of Crimea. So one of the very good examples is that this, the giant power of Siberia gas contract between Russia and China was signed that year in rubles and yuan rather than dollars. So then the trend accelerated in 2022. We start seeing a bigger and growing proportion of energy being priced in non-US dollars denominated currencies. So, for example, in February 2022, in the middle of the Olympic Games, uh, the new gas contract, uh, it was a 30-year gas contract signed for about 10 BCM of uh, of gas via the Far East pipeline will be settled in euros. 
So then in September 22, Russia signed another agreement with China under which China would begin paying for Russian, all Russian gas supplies exclusively in yuan and rubles instead of U.S. dollars. Um, Indian refiners also reported they paying for most of their Russian oil purchased you know, via Dubai-based traders in, uh, in UAE dirhams. But what is interesting also is that some of the large-scale Russian commodity producers, uh, not just oil and gas, they began issuing bonds in the Chinese yuan. So we had, you know, the major aluminum producer uh, issued the first uh, Russian um, or the, the first Russian company to issue yuan-denominated bonds, and then you have the announcements from some of the gas producers, some of the oil producers as well. The so-called um, friendly currencies uh, making deeper and deeper inroads in the settlement of Russian exports. Um, so there was a report published by the Bank of Russia um, at the end of 2022, I believe it was September or October. It's a public domain. You can find this. And so that according to that, to that report, payments for exports using dollars and euros accounted for about 48% of total at the end of 2022. So at the beginning of the year, before the war started, it was at 87. So it's a substantial drop. Uh, so the share of yuan in Russian exports increased to 16%, up from just 0.5%, and the ruble made up about 34%, almost triple its level earlier. So other friendly currencies represent just about 2% of the export payments. That would be uh, the UAE dirhams. Uh, we're hearing about some of the transactions made in the Indian rupees. So by all means, Mira, most of the world's oil is still sold in dollars. Uh, but at the same time, the numbers are stacking up because we already had, even prior to the Russian war, we had Iran and Venezuela that are selling their uh, some of their exports in non, non-U.S. dollars. So Russia is the world's second largest exporter of oil, and it's selling its petroleum exports in the local currencies of their customers. Uh, so what could happen is that this trend will develop further and the other producers might find themselves following, you know, following Russia's, uh, Russia's lead. Um, for example, Saudi Arabia is reportedly exploring the acceptance of payments in other currencies. Um, so the talks with China over yuan-priced oil contracts have been ongoing since 2016, but it does appear again that it has accelerated in 2022. We know that Xi Jinping visited Saudi Arabia. We know that there were contracts signed. We still don't have a confirmation exactly in what currencies those have been signed, but just again, keep in mind in terms of the oil market, Russia is 10%, Saudi Arabia is another 10%. So then among buyers, India, China, Turkey, uh, all other using or seeking alternative to the US dollar, uh, notably the cross-border trade settlements in commodities in yuan are also gaining ground. Uh, for example, in 2022, reported some of the Indian companies started paying for Russian coal. Uh, imports in Chinese yuan, even without the involvement of Chinese intermediators. So it's you know it's the China. I'm sorry, it's the Indian and the Russian company signing contracts in in Chinese yuan. Uh, Bangladesh is another example. Is also recently has recently decided to pay uh, for Russia's nuclear power plant in in the Chinese yuan as well. Um, and so the final point I would like to make it, and you did cover this in your remarks as well. It's it's a less visible change in the global commodities markets. Uh, but at the same time, when the, you look at the numbers, it's becoming an obvious trend. It's, you know, the shift you mentioned by some uh, emerging market central banks of their reserve into gold. And again, just for scale, in 2022, central banks bought a net of over 1,000, almost 1,100 tons of gold. That's more than two times the annual average of the previous five years. And the highest annual demand grows on record. And the record goes back to the 1950. 
So this is this is a trend that is now visible as well. Okay, thanks a lot, Natasha. That's um, that's very useful. Um, so let's turn to emerging markets now, Saad, uh, because I think you you have a lot of many different um, data sets available uh, when you look at uh, EM. Now, what is the nature of de-dollarization in emerging markets? Can you unpack the different dimensions of this that you're focused on? Sure. Thanks, Mira. So I think the, the first thing that I'd want to emphasize is that this nature of dollarization uh, is a much richer multidimensional concept now than it might have been a few decades ago. A few decades ago, we'd simply asked the question about what percent of FX reserves are held in dollars and you know, we'd get our answer. Right? But now I think it is a multidimensional concept and we need to think about um, a few different aspects of it. So what are those different aspects? So first, um, in terms of uh, the assets that emerging markets hold in foreign currencies and the denomination of those assets, it's not just reserves anymore. Uh, sovereign wealth funds now account for a very large share of the foreign assets of emerging markets. And in fact, uh, for some of the large uh, emerging markets, uh, the FX reserves are no longer the lion's share of their foreign assets. In fact, they're a small minority component of their foreign assets. So we can't just be looking at, um, at the FX reserve composition anymore. Uh, on, I just make one comment on gold um, because you, you know, it was it was mentioned a couple of times by Natasha and also by you. I think one thing that we should uh, bear in mind is that the purchases of gold have been very concentrated by uh, a very small handful of central banks, um, and even there, there's only two or three countries where the share of gold as a percent of total FX reserves has gone up significantly. So you can see in in Turkey. Uh, in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, where it's gone up significantly, i.e. more than uh, 20 percentage points. Uh, but for many other um, countries, the share of gold as percent of total FX reserves actually hasn't shifted uh, all that much. The second uh, bit, uh, Mira, which you had also touched upon, and Natasha as well, is the kind of transactional um, uh, currency, the currency of settlement. Natasha, of course, touched upon um, trade and uh, especially for commodities markets, even there, I'd highlight. You know, she she mentioned uh, UAE dirham as being one of settlement currencies. Of course, the dirham is pegged to the U.S. dollar, so uh, the dollar is still very much uh, dominant there. There's also capital account transactions, which I think are very important, especially onshore capital market transactions. So where uh, EM, uh, either corporates or households, retail. They buy dollars um, onshore locally as a hedge for inflation. We've seen that in a few countries. You know, we've seen that in in uh, in places like Turkey. We've seen that in in other countries that have faced high inflation as well. So there's that element, which is actually now quite large uh, as well. And then the final dimension I would uh, highlight is a voluntary versus non-voluntary dollarization or de-dollarization, for that matter. Now, when the U.S. or the allies decide to uh, evict a country from the dollar-based financial system, whether it's from whether it's via restrictions or sanctions and so on, that's a decision that's being made um, by the United States and its allies, um, and therefore those countries that are ejected 
from being able to access the dollar-based system, they're not voluntarily de-dollarizing. They're being forced to de-dollarize. I think that's important because often this conversation, um, when it's being had, it it tends to, like in an underlying sense, assume that these are free decisions being made uh, by countries on their own accord. But you know, for some of the large, um, uh, from the larger reserve holders, Russia, for example, it's clearly um, been a decision that's not just been made by Russia. It's also a decision that has been made by. Uh, by the U.S. and the West in in general. Uh, one just one final point um, before I pause on uh, the kind of geopolitical uh, motivations for de-dollarization. What we found in a lot of emerging markets is that where you have seen diversification of FX reserves, it's often been in the currencies of the close allies of the U.S. So euro clearly being one of them, but also other uh, G10 currencies that um, are kind of within the U.S. and the Western geopolitical ambit. So I think that also sheds a little bit of a bit of doubt and kind of question in my mind about people ascribing geopolitical motives, because often when the diversification is taking place within countries that uh, are, are close geopolitical allies uh, of, uh, of the U.S., it's, it's hard to say that this is kind of a pure geopolitical motivation at play uh, when we see uh, reserve diversification. Thanks, Al. That was uh, that was really interesting. Now, uh, you mentioned uh, the role of uh, sovereign wealth funds and how they're playing a bigger uh, role, uh, other vehicles as well, which have become more dominant. Can you just elaborate on that point a bit more um, in terms of some numbers and perhaps a little bit more detail? Sure, absolutely. So uh, I'll give two examples of two of the largest foreign reserve and surplus generators in the emerging markets world, uh, China and Saudi Arabia. Uh, back in 2012, about 70% of these countries' total foreign assets were held at the central bank. So if you took all of uh, the foreign assets owned by China or all the foreign assets owned by Saudi Arabia, both including the public and the private sector, 70% of them were in FX reserves. Fast forward to today, that number is now about 35% for both China and Saudi Arabia. And basically what that is saying is um, that these countries no longer have the majority of their foreign assets held at the central bank. In fact, they are held uh, in other vehicles. That includes sovereign wealth funds, which as we know, they've grown in their importance and their size uh, over the past decade, but it's also the private sector now, which is holding uh, a larger chunk of of foreign assets. Um, so I think there's a compositional element here in that it's hard to say what is the composition of those sovereign wealth funds and private sector foreign asset holdings because the data isn't there. It's much um, less transparent. It's it's more opaque. Uh, compared to, say, the FX reserve. So it's hard to draw strong conclusions just by looking at FX reserves uh, anymore. And the second point, which I think is, is another important one, is that FX reserves and sovereign wealth fund asset holdings have very, two very different purposes. So FX reserves are used for um, often for short-term macro stabilization, 
intervening in the currency, for example, um, uh, to underpin FX pegs where you have pegged or managed currencies. Um, so they're used for that very specific purpose for balance of payments, financing needs, currency intervention, and so on. So kind of short-term uses. Sovereign wealth funds, however, have a very different investment mandate. Their mandate is more like an endowment. It's more like akin to risk capital rather than short-term liquidity. Uh, and the nature of sovereign wealth fund investments, therefore, is very different. So in a sense, there's been a paradigm shift that we're going from uh, foreign assets that historically were held for liquidity management. And now a lot of these surplus generating countries have more than sufficient FX liquidity. So any additional incremental surplus that they generate is now in a sense, it's risk capital. It's, it's, it's uh, exists for a very different purpose. And I think this means that, you know, the nature of this question about dollarization or de-dollarization also changes as well, because it goes from kind of insurance day-to-day -day liquidity to kind of more medium to long-term uh, risk uh, capital, which has, um, uh, you know, kind of a different investment mandates to it. Thanks. And what about private sector dollarization? How important is that for emerging markets? Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, we do have now a larger proportion of foreign assets of emerging markets held by the private sector. It's no longer about uh, the public sector. The private sector, of course, again, has different motivations. They could be looking to maximize return rather than maximize the safety liquidity value of those foreign assets. Um, and the other bit, which I think is important, which has really actually come to more prominence in the last few years, is dollarization, uh, onshore dollarization. So it's not just about um, you know, central banks or sovereign wealth funds holding foreign assets. It's about households and corporates buying dollars onshore. Uh, so that's important. We've seen that in countries that have seen large inflation spikes and in over the last uh, few years, given the global trends for inflation, uh, we've seen in a few countries that trend towards dollarization has picked up and it's kind of US dollars that end up being the inflation hedge of choice. Sometimes it's gold, sometimes it might be Euro uh, as well. Um, if it's um, in Central Eastern Europe, for example, but by and large, the dollar really dominates when it comes to onshore dollarization and what the private sector would like to hold its own uh, foreign currency liquidity in. And I think that goes down in large part to the open capital account of, of the US. So that plays a very important role. Uh, so if um, economic agents, households and so on in these emerging markets want an inflation hedge, and they don't have the ability to say open a bank account overseas, right? They might be kind of the middle classes and so on. So don't have um, all that kind of wealth to be parking their assets uh, abroad, but they still want to have an inflation hedge. Realistically, the only hedges that are available might often just be um, uh, a foreign currency bank account in your local banking sector. And your local banking sector can only really offer say a dollar or a euro-based account because, um, because it's those two blocks have open capital accounts and allows those banks to hedge uh, their risks uh, accordingly. So that's, I think, an important part of the story, which often gets missed out. Uh, and again, there, the dollar really does dominate 
um, private sector flows as well. Well, that wraps it up. Thanks a lot, um, Saad and Natasha, for joining us today um, and for your insights. For more information, please take a look at jpmorganmarkets.com. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Uh, please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023, JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on June 15, 2023.